All right. Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of The Jay Davis Show. I'm super excited to talk to Al Buford, our guest for today. Uh, and we're going to have a lot of great conversations around startups and how to get things going and risk-taking uh, and even probably dive into some of the intricacies of government work, government contracts, all of that fun stuff. So welcome, Al. Hopefully I said your name, your last name correctly, too. You sure did. Yeah. Thanks, Okay, Jay. good. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, our mutual friend Jess Larson hooked this all up. <laughs> yeah. Thanks to Jess. Well, yeah. um, why, don't we, why don't we start out, uh, if you want to just kind of jump in, tell uh, listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about Patriot Group, and, and kind of start there with just a, an introduction. Sure. Um, I served in the Army for 20 years within the Ranger Regiment and Special Operations. And um, my two business partners, Greg Craddock and Rob Whitfield, are also military veterans. Uh, I met Greg in 3rd Ranger Battalion in the early 90s. And Rob Whitfield uh, was a Marine Scout Sniper uh, and Scout Sniper Instructor. And both had been contractors and Greg had been a government uh, employee uh, for a while. And uh, we were all working in industry. And um, within our space of overseas high threat protection, uh, which is kind of how we started, uh, and that's you know a lot of our backgrounds, there were some companies that weren't treating some of the guys very well. And there were some companies that were doing a little better job. And we just felt like, man, you know, if we just focus on the customer's mission and if we just lead in a real positive way and take good care of folks, uh, we'll develop a good reputation over time and we'll start to collect a lot of the best talent. Because a lot of the companies that had been acquired by private equity, they were more concerned about buffing up the spreadsheet and selling it in three or four years than they were about the culture of the company and the people and focusing on the mission. And so, you know, we're we're just like the guys who deploy. Uh, we we carried a rifle and we wore the body armor and we've been to all those places, and um, and so we lead the company uh, in a way that uh, you know they would lead if they were in charge. We're just like them, and so uh, we have that credibility uh, to talk to them about the mission and about the customers and about mission focus, respect. Those are sort of our core uh, tenets and. Um, I, I beat that drum quite a bit on our deployment briefings, and uh, uh, it has helped us a lot. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I have a bunch of questions uh, that that kind of leads to, but kind of probably the first thing I wanted to ask about, I've been lucky to meet a lot of great veterans who are great entrepreneurs who started amazing businesses. Do you think uh, there is something in military culture that encourages entrepreneurship, uh, do you think that that's a rare skill or is that common? I've run into a lot of great vets running startups, but maybe that's just <laughs> the crowd that I'm in. Uh, would love to hear kind of your thoughts about that. Yeah. Well, I think it really depends on what part of the military you're in. If you're yeah. in a, if you're in a particularly regimented large, you know, we call it big army, big green army. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of, uh, aversion to risk and thinking outside the box, but within the special operations community, that's exactly the kind of people they select. And that's exactly the way that they um, solve problems, you know, is, yeah. is to think outside the box and to take risks. You know, you take in as much information as you can and you have to start working on what they call the 80% solution. And you kind of start moving forward before you have perfect information and you, you look at the uh, the risks. You look at the um, potential uh, 
ability to, to set the conditions for your own success and then execute vigorously and refine your plan on the pl on the fly. Pivot sometimes when you need to, you know, ex execute your contingency plans when you need to. And that's that's the same thing as business. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, it just usually from a business perspective, it's more financial risk than it is personal safety risk. And yeah. That's one of the big differences. Yeah. No, that's so, so interesting you say that because the second you started making that difference, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's true. Almost every entrepreneur I know was Navy SEALs. Uh, Rangers, Green Beret, it's those yeah. guys, not not usually uh, the the bigger army uh, kind of people. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, diving in a little bit more into what you just said about that 80%, uh, working on that plan. Um, what was that like for you guys? I think that's, we were talking about this before we started. That's one of the questions I get all the time from friends and people who want to start a business I think they struggle with that. I think they have a challenge with that. Can you explain a little bit about how you guys got started uh, and, and how you kind of overcame that natural hesitation um, to 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 be afraid of of the unknown and the ambiguous? Well, you have to be solving some kind of a problem or providing some kind of a of, of an improvement or benefit, you know, to, to start a business to begin with. And yeah. in our case, we weren't developing products. We were going into the services sector. Uh, the barriers to entry in some respects are a little bit lower than maybe setting up manufacturing or, you know, building yeah. software or whatever. And so uh, we felt like our backgrounds would be credible within this space and uh, with some of the specific government customers we were targeting. And so we, 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 just, we just felt like we knew enough about running projects in that space that... We don't know much about M&A. That's not our background. So we didn't we didn't really follow that strategy. We followed an organic growth strategy within the services sector, within primarily government contracting. And those are all three things we had experience with. So so we felt like um, if we just if we just focused on the customer's missions and we treated all of our folks with respect and we attracted people who had were like-minded and those folks who uh, maybe if we uh, won a contract that had incumbent personnel and some of those people couldn't get on to that mindset of mission focus and respect, well, they would end up having to go away eventually. Um, ultimately, that that methodology worked for us and uh, we're continuing yeah. to grow. Yeah. And uh, growing into the commercial space a little bit. And so um, that that's kind of how we got going. It's just a belief in... Um, doing it right. I'll give you an example. People talk about yeah. corporate social responsibility. You know, we're going to hire somebody and they're going to be in charge of our CSR programs and they're going to go out there and do good deeds in the community and on and on, whatever that looks like in your, in your, in your space. And our idea is the best possible thing you can do to be socially responsible is to create an environment where people feel like they're a valued member of a great team with an important mission. And if you can put those three, three things together, it's a pretty magical uh, slice of time in your life. And I can think about specific teams I was on where it was like that for me. And so yeah. to me, that that's corporate social responsibility. It's not going out to try to save the manatee as a side project. You know, I think that's a great point. I think that's really interesting. As you guys started to do that, was that were those ideas fully fleshed out? Was there an aha moment of, you know, running into uh, kind of 
the bad example of of how you didn't think this should be done? What what was kind of that spark that that got you guys started, and and how did you kind of flesh out that vision over time? Well, the pain point was within our space. A lot of our friends were working with different companies, and I won't name the company, but they had had a bunch of people killed overseas, and they weren't even going to the funerals, and yeah. they were making a lot of money. And I was like, man, you know, I know we can do it better than that. And so, yeah, yeah and so that was just an example of, of the bad. Uh, the good really just had to do with the kinds of leaders that, that we were all raised by who treated, treated us well and tr treated us like we belonged and made us feel like we were valued members. Again, valued member of a great team with an important mission. If you can yeah. put those three things together, it's magical for and and, and um I love being a part of a company where all of us, the owners, are in sync about that. And uh, it yeah. feels good. We've got the same three partners since we've been in business uh, in August of uh, 09. Same partners still own the business. And uh, it's, uh, you know, three three guys staring at a blank whiteboard uh, to um, about 400 people, you know, who uh, deploy overseas and, and uh, some domestic and, and do this kind of work. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such an interesting part of entrepreneurship is that that friction, uh, whatever it is. There was that emotional friction for you guys of like, hey, these people deserve more uh, from a company that that is being paid very well. They can at least show up to a funeral. That's really yeah. that's really fascinating. Uh, well, you mentioned your partners. I'd love to hear. <laughs> I, I think anyone so often in entrepreneurship, we talk so much about just ideation, and coming up with an idea. Uh, and I just was talking to a friend yesterday who's running uh, a business that's doing very well and growing. And they, they've hired 30 people in the past uh, past six months. And now he's dealing with that, uh, you know, partners and how to work together. And, and now you're in this much longer, you know, yeah, we got an idea that's working and, that, and people are interested in it. And people are willing to pay money for it. And now we got to think about how to build a great team and, and how to be mm -hmm. good partners to each other and, and make a lasting relationship. What could you share with people as or who are maybe in that spot where they're they're trying to improve their team relationship, team camaraderie? What are some of the lessons you've learned of 13 years of being partners with the same three, three of you together? Well, one of them is uh, Jess Larson introduced me to the Arbinger material, leadership and self-deception yeah. and the outward mindset. Yep. And I liked it so much that I went to their uh, Outward Mindset seminar and then I went to their um, facilitator seminar. And that is the foundation of the humanistic approach. You know, how we teach mission focus and respect is, is the language of Arbinger, you know, of the Outward Mindset. And so it's just a way uh, to teach how to see people and how to... Um, help things go right and spend less time dealing with things that go wrong. And so that's that's a core part of um, everybody in our company gets the book, Leadership and Self-Deception, and also yeah. the Outward Mindset book. And all of our leaders, uh, they receive training on that. And we have Feedback Loop, which is uh, we have surveys that go out and we have uh, after-action reviews for when our folks you know come back uh, from a deployment. We talk about what went right and what needs to be improved, anything within our ability to influence. Um, we talk a lot about, um, I'll ask the guys, you know, we're sitting in a room prior to deployment, and I'll say, hey, uh, somebody tell me about the best team you've ever been on in your life and why it was that way. And it can be anything. It can be sports. It can be military. It can be contractor. 
And some guy will talk about the state championship football team he was on. And some guy will talk about his time in the Marines in Iraq and his first group that he was with, his first team, and why um, why it was the best experience for him. And it's usually a whole lot about trust and everybody having each other's backs and everybody being focused on the mission. And nobody was selfish. Uh, everybody was in it for the team and something bigger than themselves. And so... And, and then after we talk about those great experiences, one, and I just sort of reiterate, that's exactly what we're going for here every single time you guys yeah. go out the door, is to recreate that. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a guy that worked with a previous company I was with. He had been a Marine uh, for six years, and then he spent seven years as a 747 pilot, accident-free 747 pilot. And then he left that to go on a contract to serve on the Karzai protection detail in Afghanistan when DynCorp had that contract. And I was calling him to talk him about coming to the other company I was with. And I wanted to ask him that question. Hey, I see on your resume that you uh, were a 747 pilot. Why did you leave that and go to the Karzai detail to be in Afghanistan? And he said, because I missed being on a team that much. Yeah. That's crazy. That says a lot. I think it's something we, especially nowadays, we've lost some of that uh, as we've sought after a lot of individual, uh, even social media, I think, has exacerbated that of everything is individual and individual kind of fame and glory and, and those kind of things. I think social media brings out the worst in people, too, because the algorithms... Um, inflame, they get a lot more. It's it's the whole clickbait thing. The more yeah. you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads from the news. You know, in the seventies or whatever. Well, that's just that's social media on steroids. The the, the worse it is, uh, you know, the, the louder it's going to become in social media, and it just it brings out the worst in people. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that that's something we all are seeking is that great team. Uh, kind of camaraderie so uh, that's that's really interesting as as you've uh developed this culture um what have been some of the pressures that you guys have had to avoid uh or what are ways that you've maintained that culture and made sure that that's core to what you are i, I think that's one of the things as an entrepreneur that's really challenging you you bring in new people uh you grow you have more people adding and it's really hard to kind of keep true to that that culture that once was you and two partners in a, in a, yeah. in front of a whiteboard. How do you maintain that as you scale? Well, I think part of it is leading by example. No task is beneath any of us. Um, yeah. I, I will take out trash. I will go on to the range with our guys when we have instructors for that kind of stuff, but I'll go out and I'll shoot with them and I'll clean weapons with them and, you know, pick up brass or carry ammunition or whatever needs to get done. And, um, you know, when they see uh, there's PT tests and things like that, I go do those PT tests with the guys sometimes, you know, just to just to be present and to show up and to yeah. show that um, none of this is beneath any of us. And so if I'm willing to carry heavy boxes, they should be willing to carry heavy boxes, you know. Yeah. And so um, that's part of it. Another part of it is, you know, letting them know what right looks like uh, through through example and training. And then when someone isn't having feedback mechanisms to monitor our leadership and our teammates. And if someone isn't living up to 
mission focus and respect. How, how can we look into the root cause and maybe help counsel them and coach them into being uh, what they need to be to stay on this team? And if they're not willing or able to do that for whatever reason, then they um, they don't get to stay on this team uh, because it's not it's like triage. You have to do the most good for the most people. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a hard thing to stay true to. Uh, it's a real challenge, I think, as as you build startups. Um, it's it's easy to just say, well, let's give them another chance, and that becomes five chances and ten chances, and yeah. I'll, I'll give an example. Well, we had a guy who um, our our back office is about fifty percent women. You know, HR, um, accounting, all kinds of various functions, right? And this one guy, uh, he just he just had this thing about women in the workplace. And uh, he felt like women should be home having babies and all this stuff. And he was kind of vocal about that. And, and he was a decent, you know, project management level guy in terms of his job. But uh, basically, the three partners, we just called him in and sat him down and said, look, you know, your values are very different from our values. And those aren't going to change. And so you're just going to have to go work somewhere else. That's all there is to it. Yeah. He's like, yeah, but I'm doing a good job. I'm like, you're, you're fine at your project management role. But you're souring the entire workforce in our back office, and that yeah. just that just is that's not healthy. And you're going to have to go. And so uh, that's it. You know, we have a non-disparage uh, policy. Um, you know, uh, and so we're not going to your 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 career is yours to go make. We're not going to go hurt that. And so um, that's just an example. And you have to you have to walk the talk, and that yeah. means getting rid of people who cannot be mission focused and respectful. I know a lot of uh, people struggle with it and we've, we've run into that issue where you have someone who's a high performer or doing a good job, but is a toxic mm -hmm. personality. And uh, those people just bring everybody down. It, it, it's such a, it, it's a cancer that spreads very quickly. So, yeah. Yeah. so I'd, I'd love to ask you, one of the things I love asking people uh, because we have a lot of people who listen, who want to start a business. You have a friend who comes to you. Who's like, I've got this great idea. <laughs> I get I get a lot of these. I have a lunch probably right. once or twice a week of like, hey, I want to pick your brain. I want to what what is like your two or three pieces of advice for the person who comes to you and says, I've got this great idea. What should I do? I would say the first thing you need to do is um, make sure you have about six months or a year of savings uh, because or maybe 18 months, depending on how complex yeah. your idea is. Yeah. And um, find some partners who are good at the parts of the business that you're not going to be good at based on attributes. Yeah. You know, are you going to be the sales guy and they're going to be the accounting person and somebody else is going to handle operations? You know, which piece of it do you do? Are you the guy that does the software engineering and somebody else is going to have to run the back office and do sales and HR and all that? So um, but no one person can do it. So you have to put together a team of two or three, four or five people, maybe a couple of investors. Um and I would say read uh, Peter Thiel, Zero to One. And okay. uh, yep. And Great read, book. Oh, yeah. And read, yeah. Uh, and read Grant Cardone, Closer Survival Guide uh, for sales. Uh, if it's a simple sale, if it's complex, read Mahan Khalsa, Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play. And understand what kind of sales cycles you're going to be in and then study that. That is, that is great advice. Uh, as you've looked at, I, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I notice is people starting companies uh, with two people because they're like, well, we're all friends and we were all in the room when we talked about the idea. Yeah. And 
there's very little time spent being like, well, this person is good at this and I'm good at this and this person's good at that. So I think, I think that is very true and is something people struggle with. Yep. And there's a couple more aspects to it. Technical skills. uh, That's something a lot of people think about when they're going to fill a role. It's, you need to know this kind of software. You need to have this kind of, uh, this kind of skill, but attributes also are very important. And so if you're going to fill a sales role, um, the person needs to typically be an extroverted person with high energy, high verbal skill and high assertiveness. And they can just continue to push and push and push and push. Um, but like a software engineer is typically a much more lower energy, math focused, math attribute kind of person with um, uh, more of an introvert. And and so if your sales guy leaves in a software company and you say, OK, well, who should we have selling now? Oh, let's pick the guy that, that developed the product because he knows it better than anyone. Yeah. Except that he's not an extrovert and he's not high energy. He's not assertive. It's a, so he does the wrong attributes to go be the sales yeah. guy. And yeah. so I, I think you should focus on attributes um, probably more than technical skills in a lot of different kinds of roles because they will stick with it better if it fits them. And they can you can yeah. learn. You can learn a skill, but you can't learn your attributes. How would you describe the three of you? What what are some of those key attribute differences yeah, for roles well, that you guys play? Yeah, we're different. Um, so Greg is very... Um, cerebral and very thoughtful about things that are upcoming and uh you know he he won't make a a quick decision on on big big things and when he does make a a decision he sticks with it you know so and he's very much a relationship guy very much a guy that can read a room naturally he can read a conversation he can read a person in the body language and like we've come out of meetings and and he's like, you know, I noticed the way this guy did this when you said such and such. You know, next time we're in that kind of thing, you might not want to phrase it that way. He notices these little things. Yeah. And so he's, he's very much that, that kind of humanistic people person with a long strategic, uh, long decision cycles and very um, analytical. Rob uh, is um, uh, very much, he's, the, he's our COO. And man, that guy, he knocks it out of the park. He's just really good with the math, really good with operations, um, very quick and responsive, uh, makes it happen right now kind of a guy. Yeah. Um, perfect for that job. Self-educated. I mean, impressive. Yeah. And uh, whatever it is he needs to be an expert at, he'll get a stack of books and be the expert. You know, he really he's, he's really good like that. Um and, and and very quick on the decision cycles, too. So he and yeah. Greg are different in that way. And yeah. so, um, yeah. And uh, I, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, you know, uh, without the math skills that Rob has. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, really, I really like the leadership part of this. It's my favorite thing to be involved with in the company is the leadership program. Yeah. Uh, it, it means more to me than any other part of the business. Yeah. That's amazing. I, th- I think that's such a it's such a crucial piece that's hard to know uh, in those early days. Uh, but it man, it makes such a difference as you guys um, have uh, kind of evolved. And as time's gone by, what are some of the things you've learned about maintaining those relationships between the three of you? Uh, any tips? Uh, I think that's a big you know, people always joke that being an entrepreneur and having partners is like being married because it really is. I mean, it's a yeah. 
It's, a, it's the people I spend more time with my partners than any other people besides my wife and children. Uh, yeah. What are the things you've done to, to maintain that? Well, you know, I, I, I think respect is, is critical. And yeah. sometimes, you, sometimes you don't always agree on, you know, what that next course of action is going to be, what that next strategic direction is going to be. And, and when you have those disagreements, you know, sometimes you just, you just have to understand, I'm not always going to get my way. And that's okay, as long as I believe in my team. And, yeah. and what so there's something called the good idea cutoff point. I learned this from one of my previous uh, commanders, uh, a guy named John McArdle. He, we, you know, we're in a, in a room full of people who are specially selected, a lot of really smart people, a lot of really dedicated, hardworking folks uh, in these teams. And and so when you do mission planning in a special operations environment, a lot of the good ideas in the plan, it, it comes from the bottom up because those are the yeah. people who are going to be going out there taking the risk. Very different than big army, right? And so he said when he uh, when he came on board and, and took command, he said, I, I have this concept called the good idea cutoff point. And when we're in mission planning, we want all the good ideas. At some point, we're going to have to pick a course of action. And and, and, and at that at that good idea cutoff point, when I make that decision, I need everybody to be on board and we're all going to execute together on whatever that final plan is. And that good idea cutoff point happens in business all the time. And as long as we know when it comes, we don't get all wounded knee about it. It works out fine. I love that idea. I'm stealing that idea. <laughs> I'm going to use that with my team because I, I think we struggle with that. We notice this with uh, a lot of times with clients. We have I, I also own an agency that that does marketing campaigns for hyper growth companies. And we notice that people like going back to ideation. They're like, oh, they, you know, they have this idea. And then you get to the hard work of, you know, casting and choosing who's going to do what. And you're finalizing things. And all of a sudden that gets really, uh, it's a lot of detail work. And I notice a lot of entrepreneurs who are our clients, they want to go back to that good idea. Like, oh, I have, yeah. an, I have a good idea. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. no, no, we're past good ideas. Yeah. That, and I love that phrase of the good idea yeah. cutoff. Like, and yeah. I noticed that with PillCube too. We we are going down a road and then all of a sudden, you know, we get this a lot with vendors where Walmart or Target or will come and say, hey, do you guys have something like this? And we're like, no, but and there's that temptation to say, we'll make it for you right? because uh, we want to please them and make them happy. Right. And so, yeah, well, there's a, there's another one. There's a book called Trillion Dollar Coach uh, about this guy who is the coach for all the Silicon Valley, you know, yeah. billionaires. And um, Bill Campbell's the guy's name. And, and after yeah. he died, they all sort of got together and wrote a book about him. But um, he, it, one of his philosophies is that consensus decision-making often leads to very, very mediocre decisions. And he said, yeah. you know, you get all your engineers or your, your operations people, whatever they are, you get all these people in a room, and they've all got these ideas. And if you try to make a consensus out of it, um, it often does not end up in a real – in a great direction. The, the leader – needs to be the one to make that final decision about direction, about what we're going to do and get everybody all in on supporting it. Yeah. And, you know, even if it wasn't your idea, we need you to be on board because this is where we're going. You know, giddy up. Let's go. I also wanted to ask, uh, our podcast is about 30 minutes. So as we, as we kind of come towards the end of that, uh, you are doing some, some really cool things in this world to help those who are, 
struggling and, and going through challenges. And I love that you guys have, uh, it's still in your sphere of skill set and mm-hmm. influence and what you know. Can you tell us about some of the things you're working on uh, to help others? Sure. Uh, we've had two Afghan young ladies living with our family for about the past year. Uh, when, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, uh, there was a young girl named Asma Pygir. She was 18 at the time, and she was stuck outside the gates of the Kabul airport with 150 fellow schoolgirls in seven buses. And they were trying to get into the into the airport because they had a charter plane from their school, uh, to, you know, waiting to get them out. And um, the Taliban uh, just kept turning them back over a period of five days. And they spent like 18, 20 hours a day on these buses sometimes. And um, it was late at night on a Friday. It was like one in the morning and the Taliban was starting to clear out all the everybody else, like all the civilians, like the witnesses. And she was feeling like it's, it's about to get really bad for us. And she's texting her sister, Azada, who was in Nebraska. She had just finished her MBA in international banking and finance, and she's 24 years old. And Azada said, I'm going to try to find you some help. And so she had purchased LinkedIn Premium and um, facial recognition software. And she had gone on to LinkedIn and found people in the U.S. who had served with her father, who was a lieutenant colonel in the Afghan National Army in the infantry. Did a lot of time in combat, U.S. forces right by his side. And so she found some of these people and cold messaged them on LinkedIn, got in touch with them, and then got them in touch with one of our guys who we were over in Macedonia uh, trying to prep to receive some uh, airplanes of, of Afghan refugees. And so uh, ultimately we connected the dots between Asma outside the airport and so one of us knew somebody at the Pentagon and got uh, that information to the commander on the ground there uh, of the 82nd Airborne Division. And they negotiated with the Taliban to get these seven buses in, except the Taliban had taken three of those girls. And so we went through that same process again. And Asma was very brave. You know, she had, you know, we said, we need, you need to, our guy told him, send a map pen. Uh, Gino Garcia and Chris Sims were the two main guys that were dealing with this uh, situation with Asma. Uh, And um, they they coached her through what to do. You know, send a map pen, take some pictures of everything around you without your flash on. And we had an interpreter, Soraya, who was talking to them in uh, Dari so that they didn't give away they were talking to Americans. Because the Taliban had threatened them quite a bit. And ultimately, um, four or five days later, Asma is sitting in the Holiday Inn at the Dulles Airport. And I, and I was texting in a group text and re- realized that she was there. So my wife and I got in my truck and drove up there. And we visited her every day for about four or five days. And um, she was supposed to be going to Canada when all the other girls are going to be staying here in the U.S. Because she had a, uh, a visa to Canada because she was going to be going to college there. She had applied. But the Taliban uh, messed up her timeline and school had already started and her family's money that was going to pay for her college was gone. Taliban had control of everything. And uh, her family was on the run. uh, uh, They were hiding because they were targeted and she had escaped and it was just a big mess. And we offered uh, for her to come and stay with us and she had all kinds of trauma and anxiety and fear about being safe. And uh, we said, well, you know, she said, can my sister come? That would make me feel safe. So her sister, Azada, came from Nebraska. We picked her up at the Dulles Airport, wrestled her away from IOM, the uh, UN entity that was um, moving refugees. Uh, you know, they, they are concerned about human trafficking and things like that. And so I need to let them know I'm a safe guy. And so I went through that process. 
And uh, they lived with us for a year. Uh, Ozzet is still here. She's taking her drive. She's got a work permit. She's doing her driver's training and she's doing job interviews. And uh, Asthma is in Virginia Tech studying computer science. And uh, we are um, doing everything we can to be able to afford to keep her in college. And so um, part of that is a fundraising effort. Mercury One, Glenn Beck's organization, paid for a lot of things like all of their dental care. I mean, dozens of dental visits uh, to Smiles for Centerville in Centerville, Virginia. And they took care of them uh, really well. Asthma had never been to a dentist before. And um, now, and then Mercury One paid for her first semester at Virginia Tech. And we've raised about 18000 so far on the GoFundMe uh, to help keep her in college. And we just need to keep pushing on that. And uh, so that's one of my main motivations for doing any kind of podcast is yeah. to try to talk about Asthma's GoFundMe. And so it's, uh, if you go to GoFundMe and type in Asthma Pie Gear, that's A-S-M-A. Her last name is Pie Gear, P-A-I-G-E-E-R. Uh, her little uh, link will come up. And it's at about 18000 right now. And um, uh, we're working on getting her in-state tuition rates uh, because right now it's out of state. So we're working on that. It's happening, I think, because she just got her asylum granted. Huge thing. And uh, that should help with the in-state tuition piece. And so uh, uh, we got a guy uh, uh, who's volunteered to give her an apartment uh, for the years going forward. Uh, they're right there in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, he's the cousin of my business partner, Kirk. And he, uh, he owns a bunch of apartments around college campuses. So it's Team Asthma. We're all chipping in. We're all helping. And we're asking everybody to join Operation Asthma. Asthma, Pi Gear, uh, and on GoFundMe. That is amazing. What a what an amazing story. Holy cow. It yeah. uh, makes you it's count crazy. your blessings. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, a, I mean, I could talk for three hours and keep telling you things that just, just, just blow you away. But... Uh, it's it's an amazing story, and they're both going to do so well here because they just uh, they are hard workers and they're persistent and they're intelligent. And um, you know, I mean, Azada, she's got her MBA in international banking and finance. She's going to do great here. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, we'll include the link in the uh, in the podcast so that people can go and donate and Thank help you. out asthma. That's thank you that's so incredible. much, Jay. Operation yeah. Asthma. Yeah, love it. Well, thanks so much for coming on and, and being a guest, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for Jess for <laughs> making the connection, yep. and uh, thanks for sharing all the all of the wisdom and experience you've had as an entrepreneur. Uh, I definitely have a lot of things like, oh, I need to go reread that book, and uh, the Trillion Dollar Coach actually is on my list. Jess told me I needed to read it, so I'm going to oh, yeah. bump that up to the top. Yeah, I do a little coaching on the side just for some friends that run businesses and, and that I've been through that book twice now. It's really good. Yeah. No, I need yeah. to I need to do that. Well, thanks again. Uh we really appreciate it and uh yeah. Best of luck thank with everything this year for you guys. Thank you so much, Jay, and thank you for your uh for your support for asthma on this. Uh I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It means a lot. You bet. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening today to The Jay Davis Show. We'll catch you next time.